Well, good morning, everybody. It's, it's lovely to be here, and thank you for the privilege and opportunity to share God's Word with you. Thank you to Brian for his words of welcome and for the prayers beforehand in the pre-service prayer being there, much appreciated. Um, I got a text from Brian yesterday I thought it was quite funny, and I, you know the way when a text comes up on your phone, you just see the last thing up before it disappears, and it, it was, um, you can correct all the error from last week. And the, the, the first thing I seen was that, and I thought, what on earth did I say last week? Where was it, and what did I say? But hopefully, and I'm quite sure that is, that is not the case, but it is, it is lovely to be here. Um, if you have your Bible, if you'd please turn with me to the book of Philippians, please, in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 3, very well-known, very well-known chapter. We'll just take time to read down to verse 16. We'll maybe refer to the last few verses at the end, but we'll just read verse 1 to 16. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I have counted all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also led hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. We pray that God would bless the reading of his word. Let's just bow for a moment's prayer, please. Our Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what we have already seen and heard and done this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to pray together. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you in song. 
We thank you for what we heard from the young people and from Johnny. And Lord, we ask now as we come to look at your word that you would speak to our hearts. We thank that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we pray that it would bring to us today comfort and encouragement and challenge and salvation. So we ask for your help, both for speaker and hearer, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you have all read this little book of Philippians, only, only four chapters. Um, someone has said of this book that it is intensely personal. It is joy-producing. It is gospel-focused. It is theologically rich. It is a prayer-inclining book. It is an eternity-gazing book. It's a wonderful little book. The only thing about the book, it is so well-known and perhaps this chapter here is well known, it becomes very familiar. It's very easy to take some of the phrases out of it, to make them a catchphrase and empty them of their depth. Phrases like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Phrases like, rejoice in the Lord always. It's very easy to take those phrases. They become very familiar to us. In fact, I heard it once said of a pastor who was coming to a church to do a four-week series, and he picked Philippians. And some was heard to say he picked a very safe subject. It's so familiar. Perhaps it's easy to read. And they thought, well, he's coming. It's, it's a safe subject to pick. There is nothing safe about the Word of God. There is nothing safe about this little chapter we read today. In fact, the only place you will find the word safe is in verse 3, in verse 1, where Paul says, it is safe for me to remind you of some of these things that he had done previously. Reminded me when I was reading a little bit of that part in C.S. Lewis's story, The Lamb, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Susan was talking to Mr. Beaver about meeting Aslan the Lion, who is a picture of Christ. And she asked Mr. Weaver, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We will see this passage before us today is dominated by the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see Paul rejoicing in Christ. We will see Paul as a spiritual accountant giving all for Christ. We will see Paul as a spiritual athlete pressing on for the prize of the call of God in Christ. And we'll see at the end Paul as a spiritual alien living in a world looking forward to the return of Christ. And in all of those things we'll find there's not a lot of safety. There was a cost to Paul in all of that. And we want to look at those today. We want to look at these points that he brings out of the passage. I want to say four quick things. The first one you look with me, please, in verse 1 to 3. I want you to notice there's a rejoicing, a rejoicing that is theological. A rejoicing that is theological. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, 
rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. There's a rejoicing that is theological. If you read Philippians, you will find the word joy about 16 times. It's a joyful letter, but it's written against the backdrop of the sober realization that time is running out for Paul. Time is running out. If you look across the chapter 2.17, it says this, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Time is running out. Paul is commanding these people to rejoice. I want you to notice here, this is not some throwaway comment. It is not some polite introduction. This is an active command from God, from Paul, asking these people to rejoice. And Paul himself is in prison as he writes the letter. He is not sipping an espresso on the cafe on the streets of Rome. He is in prison. And yet he's rejoicing and he's encouraging these people to rejoice. How on earth do you do that? I listened to a preacher I like to listen to, a man called Alistair Begg. Perhaps you've heard of him. He's a well-known pastor and author. And he says on one occasion he was visiting a church on holiday and when he arrived, the worship leader was at the front and there was a countdown on the screen with 10 minutes to go, 9 minutes to go, 8 minutes to go, 7 minutes to go, etc., etc. Got down to zero and the worship leader got up and he said, how are you all feeling today? And he said, well, that was that for me. He said, I might as well have sat down. He says, I wanted to say to him, don't ask me how I'm feeling today. Remind me of something that I should know today. Remind me of something that is going to encourage me for the week that lies ahead. You can ask me anything today. I could be feeling awful today. And perhaps that's you today. Perhaps you come today with many things and many weights upon your life and upon your shoulders. What do you want to hear from God? You want to be told how you should feel? Or do you want to be reminded of what you should know? And Paul commands these people to rejoice, but he gives the reasons for the rejoicing. And look with me very quickly at them. He says, Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. There were a group of people going around, and they were adding to the gospel. They were saying to the Christian believers then, you must fulfill the laws, the legalisms of the Old Testament. They were adding to the gospel. And Paul has very scathing words for them, doesn't he? He stands very strong on anybody adding something to the gospel and saying, it's down to your performance, it's down to your works, it's down to your church attendance. He says, no. He says, Number one, we are the circumcision. 
We are the people of God. We are the true people of God. Where do you find to rejoice today when perhaps a marriage is crumbling? Perhaps the doctor brings you a diagnosis you don't want to hear. Perhaps someone knocks your door and tells you that your son has been killed in a car accident. Where do you find the strength in those circumstances? Does this mean we should never cry? We should never be... Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean, and Paul sits in a prison, he says, I want you to rejoice in the fact that, number one, you're a child of God. I want you to rejoice today in all that are going on around you that you are truly a child of God and the recipient of the promises of God. I say, I want you to rejoice in the fact that you worship God in the Spirit, that God has come to live in you by His Spirit. You have got new life and you can truly worship your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think of the woman at the well. And she asks the question where she is to worship. Where is it? And Christ directs her away from it. In all her discouragement, in all her separation from from everyone who looks on her and looks at her sin and her failure. And he says, Jesus is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. New life, bubbling over her life that comes from knowing Christ. He says, we are people who glory in Jesus. We glory in Jesus. Our boast is not in our achievements. Our identity, young people, is not in your achievements. Yes, it's good to achieve, but your identity and your rejoicing and your joy should be in a relationship with Christ. Isn't that what the song, How Deep the Father's Love Says? I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ. And lastly, he says, we have no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. And why would we? When we perhaps look at the last week, and perhaps the failures that we have been in the past week for Jesus Christ, and Paul says, you know what? Your joy is not based on that. Perhaps last week you feel last week wasn't a great week for me as a Christian. I've had better weeks. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean we have a license to do whatever we want, but it doesn't matter because our standing in Christ is secure. It's not on our performance. And as these people, these religious wolfhounds, hounded the people of God and tried to discourage them with their teaching. And as the discouragements perhaps pour in in our lives, let's remind ourselves today of who we are in Jesus Christ. A rejoicing that is theological. It is not based on our circumstances. It's based on the fact that we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. A rejoicing that is theological. I want you to notice a second with me, please, from verses 4 to 11 you will see a reversal that is radical. A reversal that is radical. Paul gives his personal story. You will notice that he moves from the we to the more personal I throughout these verses. Someone has said this. It's one of the most remarkable personal confessions the ancient world 
has ever bequeathed to us. We can't but not notice the personal nature of the account. It's sheer individuality. And Paul speaks of the confidence that he could have had, the confidence that he could have had in himself. As he looks back, he thinks of all the things that he had, all his impressive list of privileges, ecclesiastical, national, ancestral. And then he had a previous, an impressive list of accomplishments, didn't he? Concerning the law, concerning zeal, concerning righteousness. His credentials were unassailable. They were stratospheric. They were out of the world. I was reading last week, and I've shared this with someone. He was more impressed by his righteousness than he was horrified by his sin. We can be like that, can't we? He was so impressed with who he was. He was missing out and completely wasn't even horrified, wasn't even aware of his sin. And then he met Jesus Christ. He met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. I think Stephen spoke about that last week. And we see Paul as in a spiritual accountant. And you notice it there in verse 7. After this long list of achievements and accomplishments, he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I have counted loss for Christ. He counted them all up, forgetting nothing omitting nothing, excluding nothing. He'd had them all on one side like an accountant. And he reckoned them all, and what was there? There was nothing. There was nothing. And he met Jesus Christ on the other side, and what was there? Everything. And what a radical reversal. I wonder this morning, perhaps here this morning or, or online, Have you ever come to the point, like verse 7 there, there's a but in your life? Was there a time there was a but in your life? But God? But Jesus? Here he finds the words of that other song, All I once held dear, built my life upon, all this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I have counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. He's in prison, and he counts it all rubbish, all that he had to know Jesus Christ. Young people, you can have everything. You can get all you want. You can get all the finance you want. You can get all the career you want. Nothing wrong if they're done in the right way, but you count it all up. And it says nothing compared to Jesus Christ. You ever come to that point? What a, what a turnaround is life. It's like the time Jesus met Nicodemus. And Jesus met the Samaritan woman. When Jesus met the man in the caves. And we hear the story of the prodigal son. And we hear these people with their lives turned around. I'm not sure if I shared with you before the story of a lady called Rosaria Butterfield. If you ever get a chance to read her story, read it. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was an American professor. She lived, should we say, an alternative lifestyle. You can read that up yourself. She was very much 
anti-Christian, and a pastor befriended her and allowed her into his home, and a long period of them talking and sharing through his hospitality, she came to know Jesus Christ. And she said, coming to know Jesus Christ was like comprehensive chaos to her life. It turned her life around. That's what happened, Paul. His life was turned around. Let me ask you a question today. Has your life ever been radically turned around by encountering Jesus Christ as your Savior? radical. It wasn't turning over a new page. It wasn't making a new resolution. It was an encounter with the living God. As someone has said this, I have not been embraced by a religious notion. I've been encountered by a living Christ. Has that been your experience? Do you know Christ? But I want you to notice very quickly the consequences that follow this conversion. You will see in verse 8 and 9, he says that I may gain Christ. Trying to see, sorry, that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul had a new position. He had a new righteousness. He had a righteousness which came through faith in Christ, not his own which he boasted about before. He had a new power. He says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He's looking back now over 30 years ago and his overarching and unfolding ambition is to know Christ's power and his life. To know a living power. To know a power that is not of himself, not of his natural abilities. He wants to be a powerhouse for Christ. He wants to be a trailblazer for Christ. He wants to have an influence on the world and see people's lives transformed. And he needs the power of God to do that. He needs the power of God to live a godly life. And so do we. And he says, I have that power. I want to know the power of Christ. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a strange one, isn't it? I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That's not like saying, oh, that church has good fellowship. I'll join there. That's like saying, I want to know the sufferings of Jesus Christ. What a challenge. Look across from me to verse, chapter 1, verse 29. And it says, for to you it has been granted, the word means graced, for to you it has been graced on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here in me. And the Philippians got that. They might have said, well, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sign up for that. I, I didn't sign up to suffer like Paul did. But Saul says that. That's what part of knowing Christ is. Don't be fooled that God's grace only includes blessings. God's grace can include suffering for Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't mean come and follow Jesus Christ and everything will be fine. It doesn't mean come and follow Jesus Christ and all your grades will be A's. When Peter met Jesus Christ and made his great confession, you're the Christ, very soon after he went from an A plus to a D minus when he tried to derail Christ from going to the cross. And Jesus told him, take up your cross and follow me. He said, if you're going to follow me, Peter, I will have my cross and you will have your cross. To be identified with Jesus Christ in this world at times be, can mean being marginalized, can't it? It can be marginalized in your workplace. It could be ostracized in your college. And yet, Paul says to these people, it's been graced to you on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also suffer for him. This great reversal brought great blessings, didn't it? Great blessings. But it also brought great challenges to know Jesus Christ and to live for him. We see a rejoicing that is theological. We see a reversal that is radical. Thirdly, I want you to notice there's a resolve that is essential. There's a resolve that is essential. In verses 12 down to 16, Paul says, Not that I have already attained or have already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, Jesus had done a work in Paul's life. But Paul had to work that out. That's what Philippians 2 says, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We are to work out what God works in. And Paul has a new, a new self-estimate of himself. He hasn't arrived. He says, I'm still on my way. We might think he's a lot longer along the way than we are. But he has this pursuit. The words there are used are words of exertion, words of determination, words of concentration, pressing on. I remember doing, during lockdown, you know, everybody got weights, didn't they? Everybody got weights. And I know in our house, my son got weights and he started to build this gym in the garage. And, and as you went through into the garage door, he had this pull-up bar that he put out that we spent, I don't know, two days trying to put this thing up. It was a disaster trying to get it up with the bolts into the wall. And Oh, there's going to be two days getting it up. And then he started to use them. And I had sort of said, well, I'll maybe, I'll maybe join you. I'll maybe, I'll maybe do some as we went along. But, you know, it never worked out that way. And we had a little fridge in the garage at the time that he could get drinks out of when he was doing the weights. And I spent more times going under the bar to get the Coke out of the fridge than I did on the bar. It's very easy, isn't it, to become flabby? But it's very easy to become spiritually flabby. Paul doesn't allow that here, does he? There's no bland, middle-class ethic that strives neither to be hot or cold in the Bible. Paul says, I, I'm, I'm pressing on. 
I'm pressing on with Christ. I wonder will we resolve today to set our life with God's help on a trajectory to please God and to live for Him. Don't think that I'll pick this up next year or I'll pick it up in two years' time or I'll run with it when I feel like running with it. We have an opportunity today to resolve under God with Christ's help and the Spirit of God to live a life that strives for the prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. Will we do that? One way we can do it is, let's don't look back. Isn't that what he says? I'm forgetting the things that are behind me. Paul had many miles on the clock, didn't he? Perhaps like many of us. He had many miles on the clock. He was a heroic apostle. He'd been through many dangers. He was a theologian with lots of knowledge. He was a missionary who had established many churches. And he says, you know what? I'm not looking back on all of those. I'm not looking back on all my achievements and all that I've done. And he wasn't looking back on all his failures. And we know all about those, don't we? We knew what he was like. He's not looking back on those. And perhaps we're, we're minded to look back on those more than our achievements, aren't we? We're minded to look back perhaps on past wrongs, either done to us or by us. We're minded to look back on past losses and past mistakes and, and regrets and decisions we made and, and disappointments we've had. And Paul says, I'm not going back there. I'm not going back. And that's where Satan would love to keep us, wouldn't he? He'd love to keep us in the past. So I'm going to press on. If you get a chance when you go home, read Psalm 137. It speaks to me because the song was released when I was probably in my youth. And it's called, maybe some of you here will know it was called By the Rivers of Babylon, where we sat down way back. And it's a song of the children of Israel when they were in captivity in Babylon. And their captors asked them to sing the songs of Zion. And they said, well, how can we sing the log song in a foreign land? They'd lost their joy. They'd lost their song. They actually say they had hung their harps up on the trees and their past and the memories of the past had paralyzed them. Paralyzed them. That can do this to us, can't it? Ever, ever find yourself getting locked in the past and being paralyzed by it? I know what that's like. Your mind turns things over, things that have happened, and... and what we find with these people in Psalm 137, not only did it paralyze them, but when they started to think about it, it revitalized them. Because they also remembered the memories of the past back in Jerusalem. And they thought, you know what? It can be that again. It can be that again. And it started to revitalize them. And at the end of the chapter, you will find that they're calling out to God to remember the things of the past and to do them again. And it galvanized them when they remembered the promises of God. That God can restore years that are gone. Years that 
where someone else is, that the locusts have eaten. Perhaps you're here today, and that's where you are. You're, you're in a position where I used to follow Christ with all of my heart, and now I'm cold. Paul says, let's forget about the past. Let's resolve today under God, with Christ's help, to go out this week and to live for Jesus Christ as we've never done before. Finally, and time is gone, a rejoicing that is theological. You'll notice in chapter 2, verse 14, just as I've said this, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Just when we think of that rejoicing, we cannot rejoice before grumbling and disputing, can we? Takes the shine off it. Takes the shine off it. And Paul says, I, I, I want you to shine. I want you to shine for me, young people. Lovely to hear of you going throughout Northern Ireland and beyond. Shine for Jesus Christ wherever you go this year. The last thing you'll notice is a return that is central. A return that is central. We didn't take time to read it, but if you look at it in the end of the chapter, it says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. One other thing that was keeping Paul going was the fact that Jesus Christ was coming again. It was central to him. It was central to his life. That he knew Jesus was coming. I love this little chapter here, this little bit at the end. You will notice, please take time to read it because we don't have time. He compares what we should be looking at. First of all, he says, mark me as an example. Mark us as an example. That's a big thing, isn't it? To say somebody, listen, follow me. Follow me. I wonder, I wonder, could I say that today or could you say that to me? Follow me as a Christian. Paul says that. You know, it's really important. It's really, really important that we have good Christian mentors. That we have people who are tangible, that we can see in their lives, Jesus Christ. And they could see that in Paul. They remembered him. He wasn't there now, but he was tangible. He'd been there. And it's so important do we have good Christian mentors? Or perhaps we've reached the stage where we are that mentor. That people look to us. It's so important that we are an example to other believers. Our actions, our reactions, our words. When we enter a room, when we leave a room, do we leave the aroma of Christ with us? When we leave the room? So important. And Paul says, I'm not only looking forward, look around, look around at the people. Ensure that you have good Christian mentors and ensure that you are a good Christian mentor. He gets to the end, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. He looks around at some, we not look at them because we don't have time. He looks around at some who are not walking as they should and he says, listen, 
That's not how you should live, because your citizenship is in heaven, and that's how you should live. There was people who were heading for destruction, whereas he was waiting as Savior. There was people who were devoted to themselves and their appetites, but he was waiting for the transformation of his body. There was people who were glorying in their shame, but he was waiting for the glory of Jesus Christ. There was people who had their eyes fixed on the earth, but his fix was on his citizenship, which is in heaven. What a challenge. What a challenge that Christ is coming. And our lives should be imitating those around us who walk as Christ does. and mirror Christ as he comes for us. I want to finish with a little book review. Maybe particularly for the young people, but for everybody, if you get a chance to get this book, it talks about how we live as a citizen in a hostile world now. It's a book called Brave by Faith. It's on the book of Daniel. And Tim Keller, who just died recently, read read this, wrote the preface and the introduction. This is what he says. We are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being a Christian, but an actual social cost. In many places, culture is becoming increasingly hostile toward faith and beliefs in God, truth, sin, and the afterlife are disappearing in more and more people. Now Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. The fact of the matter is this. We really are strangers in and to this world. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We're not supposed to be settling down here, treating this life the way others treat it. How are we going to live in this world that is not our home? Enter the book of Daniel. Beautiful wee book. Lovely work, short chapters on how to live for Christ in a world that is hostile to Christ. Because our citizenship is in heaven. So let me summarize. Are we rejoicing today in a theological way of who we are and what we are in Christ? Have we encountered the living Christ? Has our life been turned around? Have we had a reversal that has been radical? Are we resolving today to follow Christ with a resolve that is essential if we're going to do that? And are we looking forward to the return of Christ when he will come and take us to be with himself? Thank you for listening so well. We're going to sing a lovely hymn at the end. It brings the challenge to us, perhaps, of what we've been reading. It's yet not I, but, but Christ in me. And um, Paul, if he could have, would probably sung this with all his heart. And the last verse says, I long to follow Jesus. Um, so let's stand and sing really well. Beautiful words. Think of the words as we sing, and they're so important. Thank you. <laughs>